All right, we're continuing our study through the theme of Christ in the Old Testament. We've uh, done an initial introduction to the study. Then um, we've we've uh, covered the first third of our studies on the theme. We're breaking the concept up into three groups. The first group was Christ in Old Testament prophecy. And then the second group, which we're currently focused on, and I just did a, a secondary introduction for this section, is uh, focused on the idea of Christophanies, which I'll re-explain in just a moment. And then what's yet ahead of us, and, and uh, it will be uh, some time before we get to this third segment, we'll be studying also uh, types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, this second grouping, the, the, the grouping of Christophanies, is exceptionally important. The idea is that Christ is present through many Old Testament events that um, in some cases it should be obvious that we're looking at him, though he's not named Jesus Christ yet, that we could rightly identify him in that event. But in many cases for believers, uh, we read about these events, we read about these stories, we're well familiar with them. We know that the Lord is involved and engaged with his people in those stories, but it is often overlooked that it is Christ himself that is personally involved in that circumstance. So um, what we've done for our study on Christophanies is I've given you a, a working definition. Let me just let me just reread that definition so that we're, we're all on board as we uh, dig into these various Christophany events tonight. And then um, I'm, going to, um, I'm going to change a little bit of how we approach the study from what I described last week, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. Here's our working definition of what a Christophany is. In a Christophany, the Lord appeared in one location in an actual visible and definite way. Christophanies are not permanent or lasting, meaning the Lord appeared, took form, some tangible form, and then remained in that form, but they're temporary to that moment of history and to that specific circumstance in which he appeared. Uh, Christophanies are not incarnations like what we see in Bethlehem when the Lord actually became a human being and ever since that day has remained a human being, but they are, rather than an incarnation, they're a presentation. They're a, a revelation of his presence um, in that temporary form. He appeared in some cases as a human, but as a man, but did not actually become human in that appearance, but temporarily took the form, not the nature of a man. And we've also identified that in some cases he appears in the Old Testament, they are also equally Christophanies, but he appeared in the form of an angel or in the presentation of an angel. And in terms of those, usually the terminology that alerts us to the difference between the Lord appearing as a man and the Lord appearing as an angel is this key phrase that occurs over and over again in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, as opposed to or compared to some occurrences where an angel of the Lord or uh, one of the angels of the Lord appeared with a, a message from the Lord. But here, 
the angel of the Lord, a definitive and special and specific angel who is uh, then in the course of that appearance and that story being told, uh, made known to be greater than all of the other angels. Now, uh, in the same way that when the Lord appears as a man, he doesn't become a man. When the Lord appears as the angel of the Lord, he doesn't take on angelic nature. He doesn't actually become an angel. He simply reveals himself in some angelic form. And as he does so, he is, he is showing certain aspects of who he is, and it would be more fitting for an angelic manifestation than a human manifestation because in those angelic appearances, which we'll study a few of those tonight, in those angelic appearances, he appears as more heavenly, as more glorious, as more powerful, and with some special message from God himself, just as angels are, of course, messengers of the Lord. Um, So the angel of the Lord is different from all other angels in that the angel of the Lord is divine in nature and is actually Christ manifest in that moment of history in that manner. Now, what I had originally intended to do as we study through the Christophanies, I was going to study all of the, the human appearances first and then all of the angelic appearances second. And I rethought that approach uh, this last week and I've decided to blend the two together and just look at each appearance in chronological order throughout the Old Testament so that we study the appearances in the same order that the Lord actually appeared. So what we're going to do first, of course, is we will limit ourselves at the beginning to the appearances of the Lord in the book of Genesis, and there are a number of them. I found just over 20 of them in the book of Genesis. And we studied the very first one in chapter 2 last week where the Lord appeared and formed Adam in Genesis 2 from the dust of the earth and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So our our second one is going to be found in chapter 3. And for each one of these Christophanies we're looking at, we're going to look at the, the facts of the appearance, but we're also going to try to ask the question, why did the Lord choose to appear in a Christophany in these moments and in these events, as opposed to just making his spiritual presence known, maybe communicating his message to the people that he wanted to communicate, but not actually visibly appearing in the way that he did. And so we're going to try to determine what was the purpose of the Lord in these appearances. So the facts of the Christophanies We can be super confident that we have the right information as we look at the facts revealed in Scripture. And for the purpose, I'm giving you my thoughts, my conclusions about why those appearances took place in the way that they did. All right, so the second Christophany in Scripture, the second Christophany in history, is following the events of chapter 2 where the Lord creates Adam and then ultimately Eve as well. Now in chapter 3, we have the circumstance that we know is the fall of mankind and the first sin being committed and then of course the aftermath of the sin and the Lord's appearance comes in immediately in the aftermath of that first sin committed by Adam and by Eve. So we're going to read from uh, Genesis chapter 3 and I'll start reading in verse 8. I'm going to read fairly quickly because it's a large section 
It's um, verse 8 all the way through to verse 24. And then I'm going to go back and just highlight specific key phrases that identify the Lord's presence in this story as a Christophany. Verse 8, and the they here is Adam and Eve after they've sinned. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, now I'm going to skip the portion of the serpent just for time and I'm going to jump down to what the Lord is now saying to the woman in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, so in these verses, 8 through 24, I see one long extended Christophany. But as far as we understand and the way the story is written, I think we're meant to draw this conclusion. While it's a long, in, in terms of the number of verses involved in describing this Christophany, it's a long section. Nevertheless, this all took place, I believe, in a single day. So why would we conclude that this is a Christophany as opposed to a merely spiritual presence of the Lord? And when I say merely spiritual presence, I don't mean to diminish when the Lord just chooses to make his spiritual presence known. I'm not saying that only the physical or the tangible, visible presence of the Lord is valuable and his spiritual presence isn't, the Lord can make his presence known however he chooses. But in the old covenant, when he does appear in a visible, tangible form, I think we're, ma- we're meant to take even greater notice of that appearance. So why would we conclude that it is an appearance of the Lord? First detail, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So uh, most theologians speculate that this was a, a daily routine of the Lord, a daily pattern. Having created Adam and Eve, uh, he would appear 
and share fellowship with them on a regular basis. And on this day, he appeared during that cool of the day portion, and he is taking his normal, accustomed walk through the garden, and he is about to, to call out to the man who is, as the Lord well knows, of course, hiding from him among the trees of the garden. But the detail in verse 8 that tells us this is a Christophany rather than simply a spiritual appearance of the Lord is what? What's the detail that, that stands out? They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. So if his spiritual presence was there, only his spiritual presence, he could be spiritually walking with Adam. For instance, later, a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, we have, um, you know, we have Enoch who walked with God and he was not for God took him. And even Noah is in the next chapter described as walking with God. And in both of those cases, we take it in rightly so in a spiritual sense that the Lord was present with those men in their relationship, which we describe symbolically as a walk with God. But here in this story, early, the the beginning of, of relationship between God and humanity, there's an actual presence of the Lord, a, a, a visible, tangible presence that, that whose footsteps in the garden walk can be heard, in a sense, echoing through the garden so that Adam and Eve, who are hiding among the trees of the garden, are able to hear the sound of the Lord walking. So what's, what's the purpose of this appearance just in relationship to that one detail. We're going to look at other details in this same chapter, but I think there's a specific purpose tied to that one detail, and that is, it, to me, it, it indicates and it points to the Lord's commitment to fellowship with his people, the people that he's made. He has made Adam and Eve. He's invested special purpose in them. He's invested special care in their creation. He has established a relationship with them, and now he's committed to continuing that relationship with them. And at this moment, when the Lord appears and is walking in the garden, the Lord fully well knows before Adam and Eve come out from their hiding place that they've already sinned. He fully well knows that they've already fallen, and yet he remains fully committed to that connection with them and that fellowship with them. Now, the next detail, um, I'm going to broaden it to a group of verses, so I won't reread these. But from verse 9 all the way through verse 20, what you have is a conversational exchange. And while it certainly is possible, the Lord does this in other places of the Old Testament, where the Lord remains in heaven and speaks to someone on earth. The Lord alone is able to accomplish that, speaking from heaven to earth in such a way as to be heard on earth. But in the way that the story is written, in the way that it unfolds, to me it clearly indicates that these are face-to-face conversations. He has a conversation with Adam. He has a conversation with Eve. He even has a conversation with the talking serpent in this circumstance. And there is, to me, an indication that he's present in a tangible way for those conversations. They're looking at him. He's looking at them. He's holding them accountable to their failures in those conversations. 
So what's the, what's the purpose of that aspect of this appearance? I think it is clearly that the Lord is showing by his appearance in the face-to-face conversations that the Lord holds accountable those who transgress his, transgress his ways. And uh, these are the, the only three beings at this point in history that are transgressing his ways, the serpent representing Satan and Satan representing all of the fallen angels as a group in a sense, but the Lord holding accountable those who have crossed the lines that he commanded them not to cross. Then look down at verse 21. I'll reread that verse. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What you have here, interestingly, is a picture. It's a word picture of a specific kind of activity that later became known in human history, but this is the first appearance of it. Just like in chapter 2, we saw an example or a display of a certain activity in the Lord doing that in the creation of Adam. Do you remember, we, we focused on how in chapter 2, the Lord formed Adam, and I identified that as, as a representation of a specific kind of, of activity, human activity that would later become commonplace. It's the activity of a potter taking clay and forming it and working and shaping that clay into the form of the vessel that he intends to make in his creative endeavors. In the same kind of way, what activity is the Lord doing here in verse 21? The Lord, not as a potter, but the Lord as a tailor. tailor. He's, He's making clothes. Now, I don't think he had a sewing machine at his disposal, and neither do I think he needed one. But what you do see here is the Lord God not just speaking a word and saying, clothes appear. The Lord had the power to do that. He certainly could have just made clothes appear on uh, the naked Adam and the naked Eve. But instead of making clothes appear, you see this time and effort invested on the Lord's part, actually, in a sense, bringing his effort to clothe them down to our level, rather than simply speaking the creative word that he could have spoken in this circumstance, which indicates to me a certain measure of effort. Now, why did he make them clothing? Why did he make them skins? And why were they animal skins as opposed to like... um, just as an example, how many of you are familiar with a banana plant and the leaves that grow on a banana plant? They're gigantic leaves, right? So there was a banana plant in the Garden of Eden, and the Lord could have harvested the leaves from the banana plant and clothed Adam and Eve with the, the leaves that he turned into to, uh, kind of organic clothing. But he didn't do that. He clothed them in animal skins. So there are two elements here that are highlighted in this part of his appearance. One is you see that the Lord is committed to providing a covering for the ramifications of their sin and the the spiritual slash physical ramifications for their sin is their nakedness. And now they were not any less naked before they sinned than they were after they sinned in a physical sense. 
but they have a new awareness of their sin or of their nakedness because of their sin. And so the Lord is committed to providing a covering. That covering, of course, and we'll come back to this passage when we eventually get to the types and shadows of Christ. The skin that he covered them with is a type and shadow of Christ because it is the covering provided for in the atonement that Christ accomplished on the cross. But you also see this time and effort investment of the Lord to actually make the skins. We don't know how long it took the Lord. We don't know if it was hours or if it was minutes. To, to us, that aspect or that detail doesn't even really matter so much. All that does matter, though, is he invested his presence, his time, and his effort to ensure that they were clothed and that the ramifications of the fall were mediated by what he provided for them. All right, now there's one last detail that we see in terms of this specific um, Christophany right at the end of the chapter. And this is in verses 22 through 24. And I want to, um, I want to focus specifically on verse uh, 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, him being Adam, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. And then in verse 24, a second description of the same event, but this second description adds an even stronger descriptive term. In the first verse, he sent him out. In the second verse, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he, the Lord, placed the cherubim, that is a special category of angel. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So yes, the Lord could have just spoken from heaven and told Adam, get out of the garden. And he could have sent the cherubim to drive them out. But the cherubim did not drive out Adam and Eve from the garden. The cherubim simply was stationed at the exit and entry point to the Garden of Eden to ensure that they would not be able to return back into the garden once being ejected from the garden. The Lord himself ejected them from the garden. And I think the story is written in such a way that we're meant to draw the conclusion that the Lord escorted them to the boundary line of the garden and then sent them and drove them the, the, the reason for the second description drove is that it implies hesitation and reluctance on Adam's part to actually leave the garden, just like you and I would be reluctant. You know, if we're, if we're about to lose because of our own sin, some great blessing that we've previously enjoyed, and we know that the Lord is removing that blessing from us, we're going to be somewhat reluctant in that experience. But the point is here is the Lord's commitment, not just to hold them accountable for their sin, but now in this final part of this Christophany, we see the Lord committed to establishing new boundaries for fallen man and holding the, the man who has fallen because of his sin, holding him in, in a sense accountable to those new boundaries, not allowing fallen mankind to do whatever fallen mankind chooses or prefers to do, but actually by 
uh, establishing the cherubim at the, uh, the entry point, uh, keeping it uh, safe from the man trampling those boundaries that the Lord has now newly established for him. All right, this one was a little bit longer one, but it was a very important one because it had so many elements. Let's look at the next one, which is in chapter four now. This one, I won't read the whole story. Um, if I read the whole story for each of these, we would, uh, we'd have trouble getting through very many of these tonight. Uh, but the portion I want to focus our attention on starts in verse three of chapter four. And verse three, I'll just read the very beginning of it. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their, of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now this story continues all the way through to the end of verse 16. So let me read starting in verse 15. And this is a conversation that takes place after the fact between the Lord and Cain. And, the, and here the scripture quotes the Lord is saying to Cain, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So as bookends, I just read the beginning of the story and the end of the story. You're well familiar with it, I would hope. This is the story, of course, of Cain and Abel. And Cain becoming enraged with his brother Abel, uh, rising up, physically attacking his brother Abel and murdering him. Then the Lord holding Cain accountable for the, the uh, first murder committed in human history, having a, again, face-to-face -face kind of interaction with Cain, a conversation with Cain, and then the Lord appointing something new for Cain that represents the Lord's judgment upon Cain's life in a very similar way to one chapter before the Lord appointing a judgment that would forever change the life of Adam and Eve as they were ejected from the garden. All right, so how does the story start? It starts with a, uh, an act of worship on the part of Cain and an act of worship on the part of Abel. I don't want to get into the details for our study of the differences in the offerings between Cain and Abel. Suffice it to say that later in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews tells us the true difference between their offerings. One offered fruit, the other offered an animal sacrifice, but it wasn't so much the difference in what they offered, but I think the key is the way they offered it in that Hebrews tells us that Abel made his offering in faith and Cain apparently did not. He had some other motivation driving him in his expression of worship to the Lord. And uh, it's an important principle for us to understand that people can worship the Lord with mixed motives for the wrong reasons, and Cain certainly did in this case. But the idea of them offering what they offered is not commonly seen as a Christophany, but I believe that it is in the way that it's introduced to us. In the course of time, verse 3, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn 
of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for one offering and not regard for the other. All right, so is it possible that they could bring their offerings simply to the spiritual presence of the Lord? Yes. But how would they know that the Lord had regard for one offering and not for the other? How would they know the Lord's response to their offerings? So, you know, on a typical Sunday morning when we're here, or as we were earlier tonight, worshiping the Lord before the Bible study started, we're all singing songs to the Lord. And it's possible that the Lord was pleased with some of us as we were singing and not others of us as we were singing. It's possible that the Lord had regard for some of our worship and not others of our worship. But none of us would know that. I don't know that the Lord had regard for my worship and not for yours, or had regard for yours and not for mine. But Cain and Abel clearly knew in this circumstance that the Lord did regard Abel's offering and refused to regard Cain's offering. And I believe it was because he was present in a visible, tangible way. Now, as a result, the story ends with after Cain murders Abel, and this is now some time later, there is in a sense a secondary appearance of the Lord in this interaction with Cain. And then we see in verse, at the, at the latter part of verse 15, we see this description. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. Now, yes, it's possible that the Lord could do that from heaven. He has the power. He has the ability. As with all of the Christophanies that we're studying, the Lord has the power and the ability, the wherewithal to do everything that he does in the Christophany, but to do it from heaven. But he chooses, as I said earlier, to appear in certain situations for a purpose. And in this one, just like he had formed Adam in a very personal face-to-face kind of interaction with Adam's body as he was forming it, here the Lord has a personal interaction with Cain. And at the end of that interaction, he judges Cain by marking him. Now, theologians disagree as to the nature of the mark, and it's just speculative because no one knows for sure exactly what the mark was, but we know this. He was distinguished in some obvious and clear way from all other human beings that he would later encounter for the duration of his life in this world. He was marked by the Lord in a very personal way. And then Having marked Cain, we have one other detail in verse 16. Then Cain went away from, not just from the vicinity of the garden. The implication here is that Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden. They were driven out, but they probably didn't travel very far from the garden. My guess, and this is purely speculation on my part, my guess is, and this is what I would have done if I were in Adam's shoes. Okay, the Lord's just driven me out of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, I know, it's the best place on earth, right? So where am I going to live if I can't live in the garden? Right outside the garden. <laughs> and the hope that maybe one day the cherubim with the flaming sword is not going to be on duty and I can make my way back into the garden. But here, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. The point is the presence of the Lord was still being identified with the Garden of Eden. He remained in the garden and Adam and Eve are nearby 
and their sons, Cain and Abel, were nearby, but now Cain leaves. He's driven even further away than Adam was driven from the garden, and he leaves this land, this area, this region entirely, and travels to the land of Nod somewhere to the east of Eden. But the description is, he went away from the presence of the Lord. Not just the spiritual presence of the Lord, because where is the Lord spiritually present again? Everywhere. But the localized, particular, focused presence of the Lord in the sense of what we call a Christophany. So one final detail, and that is the name that the Lord bears in all of these interactions with Cain and with Abel. And in our translation, it's just the simple phrase of the Lord. But in the Hebrew text, this is the name Yahweh, which distinguishes the Lord from God. Now, the Lord is not different from God, but the Lord is distinguished from God because each name that the Lord chooses to reveal himself to humanity by bears a slightly different meaning in order to convey different levels or different kinds of relationship with God. And so God, when he reveals himself at the beginning of the Bible, is the creator of all and everything. But the Lord, Yahweh, is the covenant Lord. That is his covenant name and the name he chooses to specifically make himself known to those who are in covenant relationship with. He's in covenant relationship with. So he marks in a covenant act of judgment upon Cain, who has broken the covenant at the most severe level that you can break the covenant, which is the sin of murder. And he leaves the presence of Yahweh. He leaves covenant relationship and he goes off to live on his own in the land of Nod. And this tells us, I think this particular appearance tells us that the Lord remains committed to his covenant, both to the blessings of the covenant and to the what are later revealed to be the curses of the covenant or the, the judgments of the covenant, uh, whether or not those human beings that he's relating to remain faithful, the Lord himself remains faithful to the covenant. All right, let's look at the next one. We'll go a couple of chapters deeper to chapter 7. And this is, of course, the story of the flood and Noah. In the early part of chapter 7, and 6 as well, by the way, um, you, have a, you have an interaction between the Lord and Noah that I do not think is an actual Christophany. The Lord speaks without appearing the Lord speaks to Noah, gives him a commandment to build an ark and a description of, of, of why that ark needs to be built because the Lord reveals his intention to Noah that I'm about to bring judgment upon the earth in the form of a flood. And so Noah in chapter 6 and in the early part of chapter 7 busies himself with carrying out the Lord's instructions which have come to him in a sense through a revelation from heaven. But then in one small detail, and we've studied this detail before, but it's been some time, and it's, it was years ago as part of a different study, so it's definitely well worth revisiting. I'm just going to look at two verses in chapter 7, what I would call a short Christophany, short in the sense of only two verses even 
make reference to it. Chapter 7, I'll start reading in verse 15. Noah has now completed the construction of the ark. Therefore, the flood can now come by the Lord's hand. And verse 15 tells us this. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And that, by the way, that breath of life is an intentional reference all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 when the Lord had originally breathed the breath of life into Adam. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, meaning not just representatives from human beings, male and female, but representatives from all of what we call the animal kingdom. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And then this last, uh, really somewhat mysterious but interesting phrase, and the Lord shut him in. Now, is it possible that the Lord could have done that from heaven? Yes, again, with all of these, it's possible. But the way the story's written, and in the way I think we're meant to read it and understand it, is that the Lord appeared on the scene in order to close up the ark after everyone and everything that was supposed to survive the flood had actually found its way onto the ark. So Noah, Noah's job was to build the ark and to get on the ark and to and to bring all of the animals with him two by two, and in some cases by sevens. And um, he's just in there now. Every, the, the, the picture is every group of animals in their own little enclosure, and, and, and Noah and his family in their space that's appointed for them inside the ark. And they're just waiting with an open door. And the door, if you remember from chapter 6, as the Lord had described how it was to be constructed, where was the door of the ark located? It wasn't located on top. They weren't descending a ladder to get down into the ark. This is a door that's on the side of the ark. If the door had remained open during the flood, then what would have been the result of the ark? The the ark would have sank and um, everyone and everything within the ark would have died. So the door has to be closed. The Lord could have commanded Noah to build a door in the side of the ark that could be that could be closed by like let's say attaching leather straps to the inside of the door and then once they're inside Noah I want you to pull the leather straps on a hinged door until the door closes but apparently the door had nothing attached to it in that manner it was just an opening with a matched doorway that would close it and then to ensure that it was sealed so that water wouldn't leak into it. You have the ultimate, now here is a third career choice of the Lord in the telling of these stories. The first one being Potter, second one being Taylor. Now the Lord is functioning as a yeah, carpenter, shipbuilder. And he himself finishes the construction of the ark. Because while the door was made by Noah, and the ark with its opening was made by Noah, it's the Lord himself that actually sets into place the final piece of the ark, sealing it tight so that the ark is safe and secure and fully survivable for the flood that is about to take place. Now, uh, in our study 
of this story at a prior time and part of another teaching series that I had done years ago. What I focused on was the similarity of this single door to the ark to other structures that the Lord has made at different times in history. It's similar in a very important spiritual way to the Garden of Eden itself. It's similar to later structures after the ark story, after the flood story, to the tabernacle in the wilderness. It's similar to an even later time to the, to the stone temple that was constructed by Solomon in the city of Jerusalem. And it's ultimately similar to the church in new covenant spiritual structure terms. And what is the similarity in all of those holy structures that the Lord has ordained at different times in history? The similarity is there's only a single entry and exit point. A single entry and exit point. You know, the idea being there's so many animals that were being brought on the ark. Why didn't the Lord make six doors, three on each side, or eight, or 12? Let's get those animals in as quickly as possible. And then the Lord comes along and seals them all up. He wanted a single door, just like he ordained a single door for the, which was not really called a door, but it was called the, the entry or the gate of the Garden of Eden, just like there's a single door into the tabernacle, the temple, and ultimately in a spiritual sense, a single door into the church. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus himself in John chapter 10 reveals to his disciples, I am the door. He is the entry point into spiritual security, the blessings of covenant protection, even during the worst judgments being poured out in human history. He is he is the entry point into covenant blessing and covenant relationship with the Lord. So the purpose of this particular, what I believe to be a Christophany of the Lord, sealing the ark with placing the door of the ark in place. I think there's a couple of reasons that he does this. Number one, in this Christophany, the Lord demonstrates his sovereignty and salvation. If he had left the door open, maybe somebody else wanders into the ark and gets to go along for the ride. Besides just Noah and his wife, his two sons and their two wives, or, you know, or three sons, excuse me, and their three wives. So you have a total of eight human beings and then the pairs and in some cases sevens of animals. Maybe someone else would have wandered in and upset that uh, parameter of what the Lord ordained for the salvation from the flood. But by sealing the door, the Lord said, that's it. That's what I want. That's what, who I want to save and what I want to save. And I don't want to save a single one less than the number that are in the ark. And I don't want to save a single one more. So the Lord didn't seal the ark until everybody that was on the ark was who he wanted on there. He didn't seal it too soon and he didn't seal it too late. And by doing so, he displays his sovereignty and the choice of who is saved. And then it certainly displays his provision of covenant care and protection for those who were saved from the flood. They were blessed that he put that door in place in the way that he did. Maybe if Noah had closed the door, maybe some of the water would have leaked in. You know, maybe it wouldn't have been a perfect placement, but the Lord sealed it in the perfect way that only he can. And they were safe and secure through the greatest flood that's ever happened in all of human history or ever will happen. And then third is it also shows his determination to judge those that deserved his judgment who were outside the ark. Everyone else outside the ark were devastated in the flood. And uh, it's because 
They had no access then to the safety of the ark after the Lord sealed it. All right, let's look at another one. We're making good progress. Let's keep going. Chapter 11. This is from the famous account that we know as the Tower of Babel. We'll read, I'll read the section. It's not terribly long. The first nine verses of chapter 11. This is, of course, after the flood. And now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, why was that a problem? The reason it was a problem was in chapter 9, two chapters earlier, when Noah had exited the ark, the Lord had given Noah a command to go out and replenish the earth and to repopulate it in a sense. And here they were gathering themselves together, refusing to spread out in a sense over the land. And not just that, but the implication of this tower that they're building is that this was a tower that was not dedicated to the worship of the Lord, but it was a tower dedicated to the worship of themselves. And so we see then in verse 5, a Christophany is the Lord's response. It's a world crisis that's taking place here. The, the, the earth has just survived, uh, only by the grace of God did anything survive, but the earth has just survived a tremendous crisis in the flood. I mean, that's a crisis, the whole world being flooded. And now here, soon afterwards, we have another crisis on top of the first one. The entire world in rebellion to the Lord. And so verse 5, the Lord responds with a Christophany. What indicates that? This phrase in verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city. Now, you understand that the Lord's presence is revealed gloriously in a localized way upon the throne of God in heaven. Is the Lord capable from the throne of seeing as far as the earth and to see what's going on in the earth. Yes, of course, just like he's capable of speaking to people on the earth from heaven, he's capable of seeing everything that's going on. Nothing escapes his notice. So why did he have to come down to see it? The whole point of this is the Lord's presence is not for his own sake, not that I can't really see that well, so I need to, I need to get a little closer in order to really see what's going on, but it's so that those that are being observed can recognize how seriously the Lord is taking their rebellion. And that he, the, the, the implication of his localized presence like this, his manifest presence, is he's coming down with a, an attitude of seriousness about their rebellion. So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning. Words of warning as the Lord anticipates what will come next. This is only the beginning of what they will do. What he means by that is not, 
ha, look at this great tower these people that I created built. And this is the only, only the beginning. They're going to build even better stuff, even greater stuff. But no, this is the only, only the beginning of their combined rebellion. It's going to get worse, just like it was worse just prior to the flood. They are reliving the same problem that brought about the flood in the Lord's response to their rebellion. And so the Lord ensures that it won't need to happen the same way again. So he says, this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, there's one mysterious element in verse 7. Theologians discuss this. They debate it. They're not in complete agreement about the implication of verse 7. Come, let us go down. Who is the us in this? So some theologians say it's the Lord speaking to the angels and the angels, some of, at least of the angels are going to go down with the Lord, and, uh, but the Lord is going to be leading in that circumstance. Others say, no, this is a reference, this is a hint at least in the Old Testament, a strong hint to the, the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit coming down. But if that's the case, what would be seen? If God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit came down on earth, what would be seen through the eyes of an observer? What would be, see- would be seen would be one human form. Why? Because later in the book of Colossians, we learn from the Apostle Paul's teaching that in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form, meaning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all represented by his personal presence in that form. And so I believe, I'm, I'm of the persuasion that this is the Trinity speaking to one another and that this resulted in a Christophany or a personal appearance of Christ, but the Father with the Son, the Holy Spirit with the Son, but only visibly observable as a single individual in this circumstance. And then you have this personal, this personal judgment that the Lord brings about where he is the one confusing their languages and he is the one dispersing them over the face of the earth. All right, um, let's look at the next one. Genesis chapter 12, one chapter later. Now we come to the beginning of what we know as covenant relationship with the Lord. So prior to this, prior to chapter 12, prior to the, the Lord's um, establishing, the Lord establishing a relationship with this man, Abram, who later is renamed by the Lord as Abraham. Prior to this, the Lord does have covenant relationship with individuals. Enoch walked with God and he was not. Noah walked with God. Um, So he has covenant relationship with certain individuals, but it's never identified in covenant terms. There are just covenant elements that are present in those earlier relationships. Here in chapter 12, we're going to see that the Lord was going to 
begin to establish a new and different kind of relationship with one man, which will lead to a relationship with all of that man's descendants, leading to the ultimate relationship between God and man. One of the descendants of this man will ultimately represent the Lord in this earth in a way no one else has ever seen or known. And that's, of course, the person of the Son of God as Jesus is born of the line of Abraham. But here um, we have at the beginning of the chapter a conversation between the Lord and Abram. It's really a one-way conversation. The Lord at the beginning in the first few verses gives instructions, commands to Abram to, to get out of Dodge, leave you know, your home, leave your, your family, leave your familiar surroundings, and I'm going to lead you to a land you don't even know where it is yet. You've never been there, but I'll show you as you go kind of thing. And that whole conversation could be a Christophany, but most likely is simply the Lord communicating his word to Abram from heaven. But then starting in verse 7, we have a specific, a specific change in this interaction. I'll read from verse 6 to get the flow here. So Abram is responding to the command of the Lord, and he's obeying it. He leaves with his family. And it says in verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So now what we know is that Abram has now arrived at the land that the Lord had designated for him to journey to. It is the land of Canaan. We know that because the Canaanites are in the land. So when he arrives at the destination of what the Lord had appointed for him, now the Lord does more than just speak to him from heaven. Now the Lord gives Abram a Christophany experience. Verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, so this one is inarguable. We don't have to stretch our understanding at all to see a Christophany here. This is an actual appearance of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. It's possible that the building of the altar is after the Lord has already disappeared at the end of the Christophany, but it's also possible that as the Lord is there, Abram is building the altar in response so that he can honor the one that has led him to this new land. Uh, the purpose of this is the Lord choosing to make himself known to the one that he has chosen for new covenant relationship. I say new covenant, we call it now the old covenant, but for Abram, this was a new experience, a new covenant relationship. And the Lord was entering into a deeper relationship with Abram than he had with any prior human being that had lived in human history before Abram. All right, let's look at chapter 15. We've got time for a couple more. I wasn't sure how, I've got a long list of these that I prepared. I wasn't sure how many we would get finished tonight, but I think we can do chapter 15. Uh, we may not have time for chapter 16, but chapter 15. Again, um, for the sake of our time, I won't read through all of the verses of this section, this appearance of the Lord, this Christophany, but I'm going to capture verses 1 through 18 and say, this is the story of a Christophany. 
And I'm going to focus on specific phrases as they occur in the text. First, in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, it's possible that in this vision, all Abram is experiencing is hearing the audible word of the Lord speaking to him. It's also possible, though, that he's seen the word of the Lord in a visible form. So it's possible, I don't want to make a strong case, it's possible that even in verse 1, the Christophany has already begun. But what you have unfold here is the Lord begins a conversation with Abraham, which is intended through these 18 verses to lead him to a covenant commitment ceremony, which is where the verse, all the way through to verse 18 ends. There's a a covenant ceremony that's taking place here. And in our current culture, in our current society, we have very few covenant ceremonies anymore. But the one that we do maintain as a culture, it's, it's kind of losing its momentum and its importance in the eyes of our culture, sadly. But it's the covenant of what we call a, a wedding ceremony, a marriage ceremony. And that's ultimately and essentially what is happening between the Lord and Abram here. The Lord is marrying himself to Abraham in a covenant way. And Abraham is marrying himself to the Lord in a response to the Lord, in a sense, proposing covenant to Abram. And there's some key things here. The word of the Lord came to him is where it starts, but I want you to notice then skipping down. uh, Abram begins to, in his conversation with the Lord, he begins to say to the Lord, uh, you know, I'm not maybe the best choice for a covenant relationship because I don't have any heirs. I don't have any children that I've given birth to that can carry on my line. I've got a really good servant. He's faithful, but I don't think that's really a covenant progression from generation to generation. So I'm not sure that this is going to work out with me as your choice. And um, we have this starting in verse four. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Now the first time in verse one, the word of the Lord came to him in a vision. This time the word of the Lord simply comes to him. And in the way that it's described, I think that Christ is personally present with him in this circumstance. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. He's speaking about Abram's servant, Eleazar. This man shall not be your your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then verse five, and he brought him outside. Not just the word of the Lord said to Abram, because apparently Abram was inside his tent when this interaction with the Lord started. It's not just the Lord said, okay, Abram, I want you to go outside. And when you're outside, I'll keep speaking to you from heaven. But the Lord present with him brings him outside. Now, if, if you're like, we're in this, we're sharing this structure, this, this church building that, that we're having this meeting in tonight. If I were after the meeting to bring you outside and I'm personally present with you and I'm now going to bring you outside, what kind of, imagery does that convey to you? What do you think I'm doing? If I bring you outside, what do you think I'm doing? Yeah, I'm leading or guiding you. I might, I might do it with my words, but really it kind of conveys the idea of like, I, like I, might, I might put my hand on your arm and say, come with me 
I, I've got something important to talk to you outside about. Or I, there's something out there I want you to see. And in this case, it's not just that the Lord wants to speak to him further outside to get some fresh air. It's that there's something outside that he needs to see. And of course, they get outside and the Lord says to him, once they're outside, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he says to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, you and I know that there are more stars in the heavens, actual true number of stars, than there have ever been born to Abraham. But he doesn't say to Abraham, look at the stars in the heaven, and I'm telling you, as many as there actually are, that's how many offspring you're going to have. But what he does say to him, as many as you can see, that's how many and, and it's just a comparative number. You, there's going to be, the number of your children is going to be so numerous. You will lose track. You won't be able to count the number that there are. And of course, if any of you have ever been outside at night to look at the stars outside of city lights, you know, out on a, maybe a camping trip out in the wilderness somewhere, um, do the stars look the same as they do inside the city of Los Angeles and the, all the lights that are shining from this city? They don't look at all the same. I, I, I will never forget the first time in my life, because I was a city boy raised in a city, first time, and this was in the middle of Texas. I was hitchhiking through Texas, which I don't recommend to anyone, but I was hitchhiking through Texas, and I was dropped off outside of a town, a small little town, and there were not hardly any lights at all. And this person was getting off the road to go to their, their home, which was off the beaten path. And I just wanted to stay on the highway. They dropped me off. And since there were very few cars coming by, I had hours that night just staring up at the stars while I was trying to catch the next ride. And it, it overwhelmed me. The, I mean, I wasn't a believer at the time. I didn't know the Lord, but it overwhelmed my soul to see the extent of the actual heavens and just what I could perceive. There were thousands upon thousands of lights in the sky that I had never seen before because I had never seen them outside of the city lights. So this is that kind of circumstance, but I just want you to notice that the Lord personally brings him outside in order to accomplish that perspective for his heart. And then the story goes on a little further and look in verse nine. The Lord is now going to start this covenant ceremony that I referenced earlier. And like with any ceremony, there's practical elements to the ceremony that have to be, that have to be cared for. And so the Lord has Abram participate in getting ready for the ceremony. And he said to him in verse nine, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. But what I want you to notice is he says to Abram, bring me these things. Now, if the Lord is not present in a Christophany and he's only speaking from heaven, then where is Abram going to bring them? He's not going to be able to bring them at all. I mean, he can go get them, but why not just sacrifice them where they're located? Why bring them to the Lord? It's because the Lord is personally present in this circumstance. And when he gets them all brought to the Lord, then Abram 
cuts them in half, lays each half over against the other. He did not cut the birds in half. And then birds of prey start to try to eat the carcasses and Abram is guarding them and driving them away. And there's some time that's elapsing. The Lord's waiting for something in this situation. And then as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And that's meant to be similar in our perspective to the deep sleep that Adam fell into before um, the Lord took the rib from him to form the woman. Because what's about to happen is the Lord's about to form an, an entire covenant people from this one man, Abram. The sun is going down and a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, known for certain, and he gives him special promises here about his, his offspring, his descendants, and the Lord's plans for their future. And then one last detail, skipping down all the way to verse um, 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, remember we've got animal sacrifices that have been slaughtered, cut in half, and laid opposite each other. Laid opposite each other. The, the sense is... This, this building is a good example of it. What we have is an aisle between two halves of these sacrifices. So you've got half of a heifer here, half of a heifer here, half of a, of a sheep here, half of a sheep there, and on for each one of the sacrifices. And an aisle in between those two. And now coming down the aisle in what I believe is meant to portray to us like a wedding ceremony, it's actually a covenant ceremony, you have the appearance of mysterious things. And they're not walking down the aisle. They are floating down the aisle. Heavenly things. And these are not, I guess technically you call them UFOs, right? Because they are unidentified in a sense to Abram's understanding but he, there is something familiar about them as they're floating because he's able to identify, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these people uh, pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, and he promise, gives him covenant promises just like when we take covenant vows in a wedding, we make promises to those that we are engaging in covenant commitment to. So what's the story with the fire pot and the flaming torch? I believe this is another aspect of the Christophany. But here we're dealing with what are now types and shadows of Christ rather than the physical presence. Because Christ is still present in the appearance that he's made to Abram. And now this smoking pot and this flaming torch appear along with the personal presence of the Lord and they float down the aisle. It says as if the Lord himself is at the head of the aisle and these are floating toward him. Now, it's a very interesting study. We don't have time to develop it, but I'll just name a couple of things to spark your connections uh, so that you get the full, I think, impact that you're meant to get from this. Why a, a smoking pot and a flaming torch? Those two elements, smoke and fire. Where do we see those elements combined in 
other important stories and events in Old Testament history. You see it in the pillar of fire and cloud that leads the children of Israel out of the wilderness. That's ahead of us in our study of Christophanies because that in itself is a Christophany, as we'll see. So in the cloud element, you have smoke, and in the fire within the cloud, you have the fire. Then you have the children of Israel being brought to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up to meet the Lord and enters the Shekinah glory cloud of the Lord. And that cloud, as it descends upon the mountain, is described as having elements of smoke and elements of fire. And then, of course, you see this pattern being repeated in the tabernacle and later in the temple itself, both smoke and fire rising from the altar of God. And so all of those elements are signifying that the Lord is forming a covenant relationship with Abraham and he enters into that that marriage-like relationship with Abraham in this specific Christophany. All right, uh, we got pretty far tonight. We've still got a bunch left in Genesis. Um, If you want to read ahead, the next um, three, uh, the next, yeah, the next four actually will be in chapter 16, 17, and 18 of Genesis. And then um, we've got some others a little bit later in the book of Genesis that we'll also uh, probably have time for next time. So let's pray just as we end our study tonight. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the ways that you have chosen to make yourself known in the person of your son in these critically important appearances throughout ancient old covenant history, but in a way that are meant to continue to speak to our hearts today, even though you have more fully made yourself known in the permanent presence and person of your son in his incarnation. Please open our eyes that we can understand your word as we should and gain the full benefit of these early appearances and what you were accomplishing in them. We thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.